Welcome back to another episode of Roundtable, our podcast here at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. My name is Andrew Compton. I'm Associate Professor of Old Testament Studies and looking forward to resuming our conversation about chaplaincy ministries. Now, you'll remember last episode, uh, Dr. Alan Strange and I introduced the topic. Uh, Alan gave something of a background to how some of our churches have uh, originally gotten into chaplaincy ministries and and we discussed broadly about the many opportunities there are for, for ministering the gospel of Christ outside of what you might call a traditional solo pastor role. And uh, we, we started to get a sense of the numerous opportunities for ministry uh, that we find in the chaplaincy. Well, over the next few episodes, we're hoping to welcome some guests uh, who serve in different forms of chaplaincy or have served in different forms, just to get a sense, again, of ways in which uh, ministry is happening in a number of settings outside uh, the ordinary weekly rhythms of a local church. So this morning, I'm really thrilled to have two of my colleagues here, Brian Blummer, our Director of Enrollment Management, and Reverend Paul Ipema, our recently hired assistant professor of ministerial studies so a new face here around the seminary although not a new face to ministry in general joining us also is jared luchabor our director of marketing it's really good to have you with us gentlemen and we're looking forward to hearing your reflections on your time ministering to prisoners i'm jared luchabor jumping in here thank you brian and uh, reverend ibma for joining me today yeah thanks for having us thank you could each of you at least introduce us in the beginning here? Uh, which which prisons were you both involved in in uh, in your ministry? Yeah, with mine, uh, I was strictly a chaplain at Westville Correctional Facility, which is Indiana's largest state prison, and I was there for about four or five years. How many inmates? Uh, inmates? How many, <laughs> how many inmates were there? Uh, how many inmates were in that prison? Yeah. Um, there were 3,000 inmates on the camp there with four chaplains on the staff. Oh, wow. So okay. we were pretty spread out with our specific areas, and we covered all the security levels there. So mm-hmm. we had ones who were minimum security. They'd go out on work details. You'd see them at uh, the dunes or something like that, cleaning up trash. And then we had all the way to Supermax, mm. uh, where they weren't seeing other human contact at all. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. What about you, Reverend Dippema? Where were you stationed? I served several different prisons, both in Illinois and Indiana. I served at the Danville Correctional Center, which is uh, about an hour and a half south of where we're at here at the seminary. Uh, it's a medium security level uh, facility. Most of the men in that prison had served time at a maximum security prison and have been uh, leveled down, as they say, to medium security because of the time that they spent, also because of good behavior. Uh, I also had opportunity to teach at the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, Indiana, which is a a maximum security prison. Um, And then also the uh, Westville Prison, where Brian was at as well. I taught at all three facilities. I also had opportunity to conduct chapel at the um, Stateville Prison in Joliet, Illinois, which is also a maximum security prison. What inspired both of you to become involved in prison ministry or chaplaincy? Brian, let's start with you. Well, I had this option right after seminary, and it was called clinical pastoral education, CPE, 
Uh, it was purely an option that I did for myself, and I'm so glad that I did. That kind of cemented the idea for me because I had had this inclination through seminary that I wanted to do it. Part of it was just having nerves for public speaking, so I knew I didn't want to do a traditional pulpit ministry at that point anyways. But I also had, beyond that, a grandpa who was a care pastor um, growing up, seeing him do that work, and then he also went into a hospice chaplaincy. I just really was inspired by that. I, mm-hmm. I enjoyed talking with him about his work and you know, hearing the interactions that he was having, caring for people that way. And that was such a treat. Finally, prison chaplaincy came, though, through um, being able to volunteer with different organizations that were around here, uh, a Cook County Prison Initiative, a Chicago Land Prison Outreach, but also Divine Hope mm. eventually coming around with Paul. And that was really fun then when we would cross paths at Westville. Sure, yeah. Being uh, through security and then walking in together, Paul and I here. So, okay. yeah, that was kind of... There was the cementing of the idea, but then growing it. And for me, uh, it was very providential how the Lord led me into prison ministry. I never thought that that would be something I would ever do. Um, Not because there was no interest. I just didn't think that it would ever happen. Um, But back in 2010, I had begun a series of courses with the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation in suburban Philadelphia. I wanted to enhance my ability to serve as a a counselor in the local church, as a pastor. And as I was drawing near to the end of those studies, which took me five years, so in 2015, um, I really felt called by the Lord to uh, expand upon that work in terms of trying to focus on pastoral ministry or some uh, other venue that I could do that while still doing the work of ministry. And in God's providence, uh, I was contacted by uh, Reverend Ken Onema of Divine Hope Reformed Bible Seminary, who had asked me to uh, to teach a class on anger at the uh, Danville Correctional Center. And I did, and I loved it. Um, that really got me interested in it. And he informed me that the seminary was looking at uh, expanding their uh, faculty and adding another member who would be focusing on ministerial studies. And so... As it turned out, later that year, in the middle of the year 2015, uh, I applied for a position at Divine Hope and um, was uh, was called to do that work and uh, loved it very much. It's uh, It was a remarkable, wonderful time in my life in terms of uh, the ministry experience in prison. So elaborate on that ministry experience. What was the, the, the ministerial approach that you each took in building relationship with inmates, um, sharing the gospel with, I, I, I'm, I'm curious now, what did that ministerial experience look like with your relationship with the inmates? Well, for me, I was in an academic format, classroom format. So, uh, my interaction with the students was primarily as an instructor, but the kind of instruction I gave was designed to be a, a very practical, uh, discipleship-oriented sort of instruction. I, you know, even though it was called Divine Hope Reformed Bible Seminary, we weren't really a seminary. It was a name that we chose because uh, of reasons that were beyond us. It was a name really uh, that was given because of legal issues that we couldn't call ourselves a college or anything like that, or a Bible school. So we called ourselves a seminary. But when people asked me what we did in prison, 
uh, I told them it was intensive discipleship. So it was education, but education that was geared towards teaching the men uh, how to be Christian men, how to be Christian husbands, fathers, members of society, how to function as a Christian in prison and also outside of prison. But there were plenty of opportunities also to cultivate relationships, uh, to do, even to do counseling. There were a number of opportunities where um, students would come to me and talk to me about problems they were having, whether it was in prison, but more frequently uh, issues with their family, particularly with uh, a spouse or a former spouse or with their children. That's a very common problem that uh, men in prison have. Um, so we were able to provide uh, counseling and advice and then also conducting chapel services. You have many opportunities to speak with individuals who are not even part of the Divine Hope um, program. They simply attended chapel and they had questions. They wanted us to pray with them, which we were happy to do. So there were all sorts of opportunities to cultivate relationships. And I, I would say in particular, um, the one that stands out for me was I taught a, a group of men, uh, varied in size from about six to ten men, who would lead the chapel services. And so we did that for uh, several hours once a week, and um, I became very close with those men. And uh, am very happy to say, very grateful to the Lord that uh, many of those men continue to lead chapel services at the, uh, the Danville Correctional Center. Mm, yeah, and I always thought it was fun. Paul, because the volunteers and the chaplains were the same, but were also different. You know, I don't know if you ever noticed that too from yes. our work. But it was just there were similar qualities to our work, but also different in that we had to be more guarded. Ha! As chaplains, uh, we had to be more more careful because the administrative side of chaplaincy could consume us. Where you guys were one hundred percent out with the inmates, the offenders, working with them, discipling. And we're back doing paperwork, we're screening volunteers, things like that. So that became an interesting balance to have to walk through as a state employee now. Um, there was very much the care side. So our volunteers led our services. They taught a lot of our classes. What I made sure that I did was, in an eight-hour workday, be out in the camp six hours a day. And most of that was just going barrack to barrack, bedside to bedside. Uh, there was a hospital unit in the uh, prison. We had a hospice unit at Westville, hmm. um, which was really interesting yeah. when you think about that. Prison, and uh, you have people who are on their deathbeds, hmm. you know. Wow. Sometimes a year at a time. But um, uh, going out, doing counseling, doing visitation of the flock that way. Yeah. And we also had a balance that we had to walk because if we were perceived as getting too close to inmates, fellow staff would start looking sideways at us mm -hmm. like, uh, is this a, fr a fraternizing? You know, they're not yeah. used to this sort of pastoral component. Mm -hmm. They're used to the security side. Sure. And inmates would look at us differently, too, um, because volunteers are there out of the kindness of their heart. And they look at us. We're not corrections officers. We're not in that blue uniform that they're used to seeing. But we're still there for a paycheck. Uh, and that can sort of make them look at us sideways, too. Like, what's our motive for being here? And you had to be out and about 
to build that rapport to kind of get over both of those sides. Let the let the staff see you're not there for inappropriate reasons, and let the the inmates, the offenders, see that you are there for appropriate right. reasons. Yeah. How'd you guys balance uh, not only uh, you know the, the spiritual dynamics of your work and your conversations with the men in prison, but even just you know the practical needs of the inmates uh, in your ministry? Well, for me, uh, with working with Divine Hope, we were fairly limited in our ability to address practical needs. Uh, I'll give you an example. At the Indiana State Prison, we made a practice for some time of giving to our, our students free of charge uh, basic toiletry supplies because most people don't realize this, but in prison, the inmates have to pay for things like uh, toothpaste and toothbrushes and other things that are basic to personal grooming, even in prison. Uh, and unless they have outside support, uh, it's very difficult uh, to find enough money, even from their jobs, which pay very little, to uh, to meet those needs. And so we would donate uh, supplies like that, deodorant, uh uh, body wash, that sort of thing, shampoo. And eventually that came to an end uh, for reasons I'm not entirely sure of, but we were told, no, we can't do that. The warden had said to us, that has to stop. And um, that was a very hard thing to do because we had several students that dropped out of our program because they had to find a better paying job on campus there at prison so they could afford basic mm. necessities. Um so for us, it was we were fairly limited in what we could do, and and I would just say, um, and Brian can speak to this perhaps more more fully. But you're you're warned by the administration at the prison that um, those sort of personal practical needs uh, you want to be very careful even talking about them because there's concern about um, volunteers like myself. Uh, trafficking supplies. That's something mm. that's monitored very carefully. You jeopardize your ability to go to prison mm. if you are doing things inappropriately. In fact, every year we get tested as volunteers over the policies of the state regarding um, what we can and cannot do with, with those who are incarcerated. It's very clearly stated that um, pretty much everything that we want to do beyond our instruction has to be pre-approved by the administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say jeopardize your ability to go to prison. You know, some of these guys are fighting for their lives to stay out, but that's just where we are. But you are absolutely right. You know, the the suspicions that can arise, the the challenges, the issues, you're always on this tightrope, you know, between the um practical and, you know, the inappropriate and things like that. You know, it's really this this strange, bizarre world that's in there. People always ask me, you know, like, how free were you? Was it, you know, you talk about different things that are going on in the world now, like do they tighten you from doing your work and things like that? And I said, I was never freer, I think, to do the gospel work than I had ever felt anywhere else. The guys know who I am. I was an all-male facility. There's female facilities. I'm sure it's the same there. They knew who I was. I walk on the deck, hey, chap, you know, and they knew that um, I was a Christian, you know, that I was a Christian chaplain. Um, And we would, 
so they would ask questions, you know, and and that prevented this, the certain policies that were out there of um, evangelizing. I forget what what the technical term was, a proselytizing. Mm-hmm. There were those those barrings and you know policies and so forth really never came into play because they were initiating the conversation anyways. I mean, they knew who I was, so. It was very freeing, and at the same time, yeah, we would we would have our clerks come to the office, and they'd bring their sack lunch with them, and you'd look at this bologna that they would have with them, you know. And it was, it's not even bologna; it's it's, it's a total mystery meat, and it's like, I, you know, these guys—they're doing such good work for me. I'd love to bring them a good meal, you know. And things like that are, just, yeah, they're totally out of line; they're totally against policy, and it's just like it pulls at my heart. You know, mm-hmm. to see that. And meanwhile, I'm bringing leftover meatloaf from home. That's just yeah. worlds better than what they have. You know, so hard. Yeah. Did you guys ever experience um, having to navigate um, some potential conflicts between your faith and the policies and regulations of the prison system? I don't know that I experienced that in a, a profound way. I think there are some minor issues that came about. You had to be very guarded in terms of addressing issues of a political nature. In fact, it's best to navigate away from that. Uh, I remember I had made a comment in class one time um, regarding somebody from American history that I described as as a a devout Christian man. And uh, a student took exception to that because this man had been a slave owner. And I actually ended up having to report the incident to the chapel, and that's policy again. If somebody wanted to, uh, a, an inmate wanted to make a, a grievance against me, I had to guard myself against being dismissed by explaining the situation. But in terms of, in terms of uh, policy, we had to be careful also not to speak negatively about other faiths or other denominations even. Say, for example, in a chapel service, especially, I think, where you have a wide variety of men, not just men from our program at Divine Hope. So we tried to be positive about what it was that we were presenting and not really interacting with other religions or other um, parts of the Christian faith. So I, I would say that was really what we had to navigate more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it was, it was um, a different situation for the chaplain, you know? So for example, during business hours, Islamic prayer comes about. And so we have to open the chapel to Islamic prayer. And because mm-hmm. it was business hours, they didn't want to give up custody staff, correctional officers to go and, uh, you know, supervise and do the paperwork of the, of the service and all that. So they would have me in the uh, Islamic prayer service, again, not participating, but greeting the guys, welcoming hmm. them. We had to make sure that there was equal and ample time for every organization. And there are more religions in prison <laughs> than they ever yes. teach here in missions and evangelism or anything like oh, that wow. beyond you know what's in our textbooks and all so it was a it was an eye-opening experience yeah. and again it you know there was nothing uncomfortable about it because i'm welcoming the guys and greeting them these are the same guys i'd see on the walks you know and they mm-hmm. would come and okay i'm not in your service i'm not in your faith so i'm going to stand in back and uh 
you know, there there was that component. Sure. Well, I would I would add to that as well, Brian. That uh, at Divine Hope, we did not limit our student body to those who profess the Christian faith. Hmm. Um, we had. Seventh-day Adventists who were part of our group, people who were atheists and, and told us so. Um, I even had a student who claimed to be a Satanist hmm. in, in class, which, of course, was a, an interesting experience. Sure. But looking at it from an evangelistic ministry point of view, uh, why wouldn't we invite them? We're, we're here to teach them the gospel. I want I want a Satanist to, to hear the gospel of Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. I want others of different faiths to hear that. And again, we we want to be positive in terms of uh, expressing what it is that we believe the Bible teaches, but certainly there are a wide variety of men in chapel services as well. You get all mm-hmm. sorts of people uh, that will show up, some of whom are there because they want to hear uh, the gospel and because they want to worship. There are others, as Brian well knows, who are there for other reasons, which I don't know that I'll get into, but let's just say they're, they're less than honorable purposes. Uh, in fact, other chaplains have told me, uh, for example, at the Indiana State Prison, uh, there was all sorts of inappropriate behavior going on during the chapel service, including uh, gang activity, gang business, drug uh, transactions going on. So again, we, we want to to allow as many as want to be there and can be there, but we also want to make sure that what is the focus is the gospel. You guys willing to share any examples of um, or stories of inmates who have experienced transformation or or positive changes as a result of your ministry or or chaplaincy? Well, I can speak of several, but I, I think about the men that I mentioned earlier who are involved in our chapel ministry. Um, I've seen I've seen them mature. Now, many of those men are committed Christians when they start with our program. So in that sense, we we have an advantage of working with men who already know the gospel, know the Bible fairly well. And in fact, uh, a number of the African-American uh, inmates who are in that program, um, formerly outside of prison, were involved in assisting their pastors and leading worship services and even preaching. Um, they don't have the kind of strict rules that we see, for example, in Reformed churches about who may and who may not preach or exhort. Um, so just to see the maturity, to see to see a man uh, deliver the word in a chapel service or just to conduct a worship service, understanding and explaining to the men in the room what it is that we're doing in worship is such a wonderfully gratifying experience. But yes, we've also seen, and I'm sure Brian has as well, men who uh, knew little or, or nothing about the gospel and through the work of the ministry of divine hope or through the chaplaincy ministry, they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a wonderful experience to see men really being delivered from from the pit. Um, that's how I would describe prison life. And for many of these men, of course, being in prison is the lowest point of their life, uh, I always assume that when I lead a chapel service is that many of these men are wrestling with how am I going to deal with my life now that I'm at this point? Things have, this is as bad as things have, have become for me. And I often will say that uh, you may discover looking back years from now that uh, the greatest blessing is that the Lord brought you to this place and turned your life around. And there, there have been a number of men that I saw in, in nearly eight years of ministry in prison, men who uh, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, and um, 
it, it's just a remarkable, wonderful thing to see God's grace at work in their lives. From our standpoint, we kind of had to take the little successes that came along the way. Um, you know, the guys that are lining up for their Divine Hope class and they're all excited to go there. Like that was a little boost to the energy to keep going in the job, to see that, you know, or to go to the graduations too. Uh, and I was just so thankful that Divine Hope would include us as chaplain staff in those ceremonies. Um, so just those little things along the way, because if you take the sort of macro, like what do people think is a success not going back to prison? You come to realize the system can be just so weighted against that goal. You know, if you have a job and you lose the job, you go back to prison. Or if you have a job, you can't get released to go to a parole appointment. You could go back to prison. And so you just need those little boosts for when, you know, John has left, but he's come back. Well, okay, maybe there's a circumstance I don't know about, but let's help him keep going, you know, and use that. Um, I just think, too, like I saw my first adult baptisms in prison. How incredible, you know, and I started this job after seminary. Uh, I'd been in Reformed churches all my life, so this would have been, I was 34 years old when I started this job, and I'm seeing my first Adults converted, brought into faith. How cool that was to be able to participate, to enjoy that, to witness that. Um, just really good. So we probably have um, some, perhaps, listening right now who have the desire to um, enter into the prison ministry or chaplaincy. What, what advice would you give to someone considering that uh, career? I would say if they want to get involved in prison ministry, I certainly would encourage that. There's, and I think Brian would agree, there's there's an urgent need for volunteers and for ministry in prison. It, it is such a, a dark and, and in many ways a hopeless uh, place. And uh, the light of the gospel uh, is so urgently needed in that sense. I would say, um, even if, if someone doesn't want to make that a vocational transition, if perhaps, say, uh, you want to be involved in a volunteer basis uh, in your spare time to do that, contact a local prison. See if there is some way that you could lead a Bible study or participate in some way. People uh, who are in the chaplaincy there are, are always looking for volunteers. They, you know, Brian hasn't said it because he's modest, but uh, my impression of <laughs> where's this going? My impression of most chaplains, I would say all the chaplains I've worked with. Um, they are overwhelmed by a mountain of administrative duties. And um, quite frankly, they have precious little time to do pastoral work. And many of them have testified to that to me, that they're so grateful for people like, like us who come in there and do that work as volunteers to help them because they simply don't have time or opportunity to do that. So I think there are a couple of ways that people can get involved. Um, you know, perhaps perhaps our churches can begin to organize uh, ministries, and maybe someone may look at full time vocational ministry in prison. Uh, like I said, there's certainly a need for that. But I think on a more on a broader level, uh, many people can get involved. And, and I have told people, and I'm sure Brian would agree with me. My experience has been when I have brought 
people from uh, various churches to attend a chapel service. I have never had one who was sorry that they went to mm. to the chapel service. Every person that I have brought to prison, either in a chapel service or in a classroom setting or at a graduation ceremony, many of the board members from Divine Hope would come to the graduation services, um, are always impressed with what they see and uh, are very touched by how grateful these men are. These men are overwhelmingly grateful that someone cares enough to come and, and visit them and bring the gospel to them and minister to them, to pray with them and to talk to them about their faith and about all the ways in which their faith um, has affected different aspects of their lives, personally, uh, family, and, and basically how they cope with prison life in light of the fact that they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I would say, remember, it's, it's a beautiful world coming into the prison seeing things like that is also very bizarre. Uh, you interact with things that our bubbles and circles don't typically interact with, and that's okay. You can get through it. And sometimes, you know, the right person comes and thrives. For us, um, yeah, ministry on the inside, we were, we were, we had a wealth of volunteers who were willing to do that. We were very thankful for that. I would say, yeah, there's ministry that happens on the inside, but think outside the box too and remember that incarceration is as much on the outside as well because we have pro probation and parole, you know. Absolutely. And reentry centers and all these things. So there are oppor opportunities outside the wire, uh, outside the fence that uh, you can interact with as well. So looking at those, you know, bringing them uh, toilet supplies as well or clothing, um, thinking even of like khakis and shirts because these, when when they leave the reentry center, they need a job interview, you know, and so remembering those things as well. Uh, there's correspondence ministries too that um, you can do as a as a Christian. So like a crossroads uh, prison ministry, you don't even need to go into the fence if you're a long drive from a facility. Well, now. Uh, you can minister to someone by being sort of a pen pal, uh, grading their their Bible studies that they send you, but also sending them letters and notes. Those are ways you can interact as well. So I would say for someone who's considering it vocationally, it's not for someone who's just a dropout of the ministry. There are actual needs that are there. There are gifts that suit. It's not because you failed over here, come over here. Right. If you have a real gifting, a real heart, a real calling, that's legitimate. And I was glad in the intro conversation that Alan Strange pointed out there is room in church orders, even in Presbyterian circles, for this kind of a ministry. But I would say be guarded. Be pointed when you go into your interview. Ask administration and ask fellow chaplains. Lord willing, there's fellow chaplains. Uh, who are there. What are the goals for my ministry? If it's all paperwork, then they need to tell you that. I was very thankful when I went into my interview. I asked I, I asked that question, and they said, we want someone who's going to be out and about. And thankfully, we had three other chaplains to spread the wealth of paperwork. Eventually, uh, it, you know, it, it can grow, and you need to s s uh, fence out your space, you know, but be very pointed in that interview of 
what am I supposed to do? And weigh that against your gifting, against your calling. And Lord willing, I, I pray that it would bring a very faithful ministry ahead of you. I would add to that as well that if if this is something that interests you in terms of of actually going to prison and ministering among the incarcerated, you must be flexible in terms of understanding that you're entering into a, a situation, a field where, as Brian has mentioned now several times, you have all sorts of um, strange and often conflicting ideas about religion. Um, also understand that many of these men have little or no knowledge of, of scripture or of the gospel story, anything like that. So you, you must be flexible and, and not so, so firm and, and so inflexible about, um, people, your expectations need to be, I would say, um, reasonable. And in that sense too, you need to be patient because uh, change in that environment is often slow and it's incremental. If you think that after one chapel, you're suddenly going to find a group of men who are fully converted to the Reformed faith, guess again. (laughs) There are all sorts of things that have to be sorted out. Ministry is messy, whether you're in prison or outside of prison. And if, if you can, and I say this to seminarians as well, if you can't deal with the messiness of ministry, you ought not to pursue ministry. You, at least you ought to think twice about pursuing ministry. Um, ministry is messy and even more so within the context of a prison. And uh, just the environment in which they live, the pressures against which they face uh, are, are sometimes overwhelming. Especially, for example, and Brian can speak to this as well, that when there's a lockdown, say there's been a, a some kind of an assault either upon another inmate or upon a, a staff member, uh, and they go on lockdown for sometimes weeks at a time, maybe even months at a time, um, the effect of that upon the the psyche and the spiritual well-being of the inmates mm-hmm. is uh, is palpable. I mean, yeah. it's it's quite remarkable. And again, you have to be able to deal with those things and deal with disappointments also of being told, for example, uh, you can't come because because of a lockdown. You you can't do this or you can't do that. And uh, you have to be flexible enough to say, I'll work with the system. I'll work within the system. And uh, the Lord will use me in the way he sees fit. Mm-hmm. I would just add to that, if I can. Take care of the chaplains who are in your life and take care of their families. Mm-hmm. It's a lockdown. You feel the sort of powder keg that a prison can become. Tensions rise. Stress goes up. But in general, too, the question is always who chaplains? The chaplains, you know. And so take care of them. Champion them. Chaplain them and champion them. Uh, champion their families as well. Because I, I know for a fact the last day I walked out of the facility on my last day of the job, uh, my wife breathed a sigh, of, a sigh of relief, you know. And so be good to them, care for them. They need it. They need it too. Well, thank you, Brian and Reverend Ipema, for taking the time to join me. And uh, this is really enlightening to hear about uh, prison ministry. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Next time, alumnus of Mid-America, Reverend Phil Chilker joins Dr. Andrew Compton for a discussion on hospital chaplaincy. Stay tuned for that. 
For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.